Left Weekly Radio. There's one newspaper that is independent of powerful capitalist interests, and that is Green Left Weekly. It's the people's voice committed to human and civil rights, ecological sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas that the mainstream media won't. Green Left is a leading source of local, national and international news with analysis, discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movement. It helps expose the lies of the capitalist press and puts the voices of the marginalised and the oppressed at the centre of fighting for a better world and helps us understand the political developments unfolding around us. Good morning, listeners. You are listening to Green Left Radio. It is a fine Friday morning on the 23rd of April, and for your presenters today, we have myself, Jacob Anjwafa. And me, Zane. How you going? So, um, before we get on to the program, I would like to acknowledge that FreeCR today is being broadcast to you from the Wandry land of the Kulin Nation. We like to acknowledge that this always was, always will be Aboriginal land, and that sovereignty was never ceded. And that FreeCR and Green Left Radio will always and continue to support um, the fight um, back of Indigenous people around Australia as as they fight back for sovereignty and land rights. Hear, hear. Now, I guess to kind of start off the um, the program, I guess I want to kind of um, is that Scott Morrison kind of made a number of kind of interesting comments um, about the climate recently. And including making a comment that, you know, um, political change or climate change is not going to happen while we're dining out on cafes or wine bars, etc., which I thought was a bit of a weird and random kind of comment. Um, but I was going to pass it on to Zane because Zane had a kind of number of comments on some of Scott Morrison's recent comments and he said more than that. He also kind of indicated a certain sort of commitment to certain sort of policy, which I think is likely to be actually very insufficient, and in fact, worse than insufficient. So, mate, saying you wanted to comment on it? It's Groundhog Day. Uh, yeah, so they've just announced this policy, and it's about funding, quote-unquote, clean hydrogen and carbon capture and storage. And I feel like I've been transported back to 2006, and John Howard is still in power. Um in particular, the focus on carbon capture and storage. So what's happened over the last 10 years, pretty much for the last decade, consistently global investment in renewables has outstripped coal. And there's a reason for that. And that is because profit-seeking energy capitalists recognise that renewables are a better investment than coal. So it's already the case that renewables are cheaper than coal. Um, carbon capture and storage is just a myth that is designed to provide political cover and to drag out and to delay. And it really disgusts me that 15 years on from John Howard pushing carbon capture and storage, it is still getting pushed by the Liberal Party. How does carbon capture and storage work? Okay, well... The air that we breathe that is burnt in coal-fired power stations is 78% nitrogen. If you want to capture the carbon dioxide coming out of a, out of a power station and store it, 
you don't want all this nitrogen in there because it takes up a lot of space and it's expensive to store this gas. So the first thing you've got to do to make carbon capture and storage work is you've got to have a oxygen refining plant next to your coal-fired power station, which adds to the cost, and you've got to burn your coal with pure oxygen. Then when it comes out the other side, you've got to catch all of these hot expanded gas and cool it down, super cool it and condense it. And then what do you do with it? You either put it in trucks or you put it into compressors and you put it in pipes to go and store it somewhere. But, and this is the key thing, where do you store this massive stream of carbon dioxide that's coming out of a coal-fired power station? The only place, the only viable storage location that has ever been devised that is halfway doable is down old oil and gas wells. That's the only place you can put the stuff. And why did they invent this technique? Because they use that pressurised gas to push out the dregs of oil and gas that are down the well. That's that's the whole basis upon which carbon capture and storage was devised. So the only way you're going to store it is pushing more fossil fuels out of the ground that are then going to get burnt and create CO2. So it is just the most ridiculous non-solution and it really disgusts me that it's still being talked about. And to me, it just it just shows. It doesn't matter how many massive bushfires that roast this country. Uh, it doesn't matter how many floods, massive killer heat waves. It doesn't ha- matter how many severe heat events. The whole North Pole could melt. And these disgusting liberal politicians and a bunch of Labor politicians, by the way, and the yellow leadership of the CFMEU Mining and Energy Division, they're still going to be pushing clean coal. It's crap. We just need to stop burning coal. We just need to go 100% renewable. It's really simple. That's the most cost-effective way to do it. We're never going to have clean coal. It's a stupid idea, and it's disgusting that they've announced this policy, that they're going to put money into it. And then their hydrogen thing that goes with it, there's this idea at the moment of so-called green hydrogen. So that's what, when you have a 100% renewable energy grid, you need to build a whole bunch of extra solar and wind so that when there's not really that much wind and there's a bit of cloud, you're still getting enough wind and solar out of your system to run all of the buildings and all of the water heaters and factories and blah, blah, blah. However, when it's really sunny and windy, because you've overbuilt your energy system to allow for the days that are more cloudy and more still when it is windy and sunny you get this massive surplus of energy and there's this idea that's popular at the moment and which makes sense which is that you dump all of this surplus energy into splitting water into hydrogen and oxygen and then you use that hydrogen kind of like where you would normally use natural gas you can use it in cars you can use it in power stations there's a whole bunch of stuff you can make steel using hydrogen What ScoMo is talking about is not getting green hydrogen from renewables, from a 100% renewable energy system, and using that hydrogen for stuff. What ScoMo is talking about is putting money into making blue hydrogen plants, which take natural gas and then split it apart and get hydrogen out of it, 
and brown hydrogen plants, which take coal and get hydrogen out of that, and these processes result in the generation of, you guessed it, a whole bunch of carbon dioxide as a byproduct. So it is, a again, a rubbish idea, a non-solution, and it, it kind of it derails this idea of green hydrogen and it, it sort of puts it into propping up the coal, oil and gas industry that this government is just determined to keep supporting no matter how bad the climate crisis gets. So these people are scum and we need to get out in the streets at the climate strike on Friday, May 21 and we need to kick these people out of government and we need a Green New Deal because the clock is ticking. Hmm. Yeah, definitely. It's um, I think it's sort of interesting that um, when it comes to the Morrison government... And I think, you know, you can probably see that at least, I think, just to give a bit of a positive context, not to give any defence to Scott Morrison, it's sort of interesting, I think, and I think it sort of shows, I think, the power, I think, of the client mobilisations in the past several years. It has been quite interesting that there has been a bit of a shift from the Morrison government of kind of acknowledging that there is some kind of issue with the climate and, in fact, trying to put forward solutions at the same time. I think, clearly, these solutions are terrible, but it's kind of like almost like an example of the government attempting to kind of move the goalposts constantly. And in fact, they've actually moved the goalposts in theory with the gas-led um, recovery because the gas-led recovery is supposed to be, basically, it's trying to rehabilitate um, gas as like a clean energy in comparison to coal. Um, mm. Because So there is some tact acknowledgement that we can't keep going on with coal but of mm. course their solutions are, all, are generally going to be false and always about protecting the profits of the fossil fuel companies but i think it what it shows is i think the power that the mobilizations have had of putting the question of the climate on the agenda mm. but really we've got to it shows that we still have a long way wo- long way to go and that we have to keep pushing until we can get until the government um to push the government to even further Hmm. Yeah, but that and that is the real difference between 2006 is even though there was some, you know, the first really big climate demonstrations that we've seen in Australia in 2006 with the walk against warming marches, um, it was still a pretty marginal issue. Uh, whereas today, 15 years later, uh, climate and energy policy is really mainstream. It's something that gets talked about often. And we've still got big climate strikes happening and stuff like that and and continuing to push this debate and discussion further and further to the left. So, yeah, it is, I guess, a sign of progress that they're being forced to respond and recycle of their, all of their bullshit spin. Yeah. But yeah, it's. I think it's just. It's. But yeah, obviously no illusions in any of the governments, um, any of the major parties. In fact, both major parties. It's actually becoming even more striking how committed they are to um, to the coal industry, and it's like you know, despite the fact that it's clear, it's it's clear that the majority of people who live in Australia support strong climate action. Um, despite it's. 
our the the politicians are clearly have no understanding or completely out of sync with what the actual public actually wants, and I think that's a I think a very kind of striking kind of thing to see. At least ordinary people do have the understanding of what is needed. Yeah, totally. But it's clear. But it's that politicians don't. Yeah, there's a super majority. There's a there's a like two thirds majority in Australia that supports. You know, pretty robust climate action, moving to renewables, phasing out coal. And, yeah, the gap between what our parliamentary so-called democratic representatives uh, have to say versus what the vast majority of the population know needs to happen, that gap just keeps widening. And that speaks to a a power vacuum and and a potential for radical change. Hmm. Well... Um, I might just go, um, we might conclude this discussion and I'll just play a quick announcement and then we'll move on to the next part of the program. But really the summary of it is the Morrison government is, is consistently putting forward false solutions to the climate crisis. And really, if we're going to actually make um, radical change to address the nature of the climate crisis that we're in, we're going to need something more than um, we're going to need... 100% renewables by at least 2025. Um, we shouldn't, we can't wait until 2050. And of course, we need to make a transition away from coal with no new coal, um, um, coal mines. And of course, a closing down and a transition of all the existing coal mines. Okay. Well, I'll just play a quick announcement. Um, you are listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855 AM. When I was new to Melbourne, I found a footnote bombs fly on the road and I had like this fist with a carrot and carrots are my favourite vegetable. Yeah, I think they were asking for help doing stuff and I got in touch. We, I guess, rescue food. That would otherwise go to waste. I like the aspect of sharing food and um, not making anyone feel obligated to pay anything for it. We make a real point at footnote bombs of involving everyone who wants to be involved in whichever part they want to be involved in. For more information, go to fnbmelb.noblogs.org. Food Not Bombs is a 3CR supporter. All right, you're listening to Green Left um, Radio, and... I'm going to be playing, for the next part of the program, I'm going to be playing a recording of a talk um, that was given by Ronan Lee. Um, Ronan Lee is part of the International kind of State in- Crime Initiative and the author of Myanmar's Rohingya Genocide Identity, History and Hate Speech. This forum he spoke at was a panel um, discussion that was organised by Green Left last week on the question around repression and resistance in Myanmar. Because currently, right now, there's a very expiring kind of um, social movement um, occur, um, happening in um, in Myanmar right now against the the military coup, and Rowan Lee's um, kind of talk gives kind of a good sort of um, setting up of the kind of context for the military coup and the fa- and basically the kind of what what's sort of happening next in response. So yeah, I hope listeners um, enjoy this recording as um, that I'm going to play in three, two, one. 
Well, look, thanks so much for organising this. It's good to join you. I want to just obviously mention that uh, this is not the first event that uh, Sue and her team have organised on this subject. Uh, one of the one of the um, immense frustrations for people who've worked on subjects uh, like, like the situation in Myanmar is that there are people who do great work, but whenever there's uh, international media attention or even national media attention, you get all sorts of other people who come out of the woodwork and I, I think sometimes distract from uh, important narratives and important messages. And so I, I'm, I'm always delighted to participate in events that are organised by groups that have actually got a long, uh, long-standing history and understanding of of the issues. And, and great to be on another panel with with uh, Habib as well. So hi, hi Habib. Um, I should start by mentioning that. Uh, well, I'll admit I was surprised that a coup took place on the first of February. Um, it, it, it was not something that was beyond the realm of possibility. And it, it was the prospect, prospect of a coup was something that, in fact, I've mentioned in my book as a potential. But my feeling by the time we got to the 1st of Feb was that the military had come to terms with the situation as it existed in Myanmar. And the situation was this, that they had a constitution that they wrote in 2008 that gave them immense political and economic power. 25% of the seats in the parliament were occupied by soldiers wearing uniforms, uh, appointed directly by the commander-in-chief of the military, Min Ong Lang, uh, who was subject to zero civilian oversight of military decisions. So here's a situation where uh, the military is, in fact, constitutionally a law unto itself. Uh, there was no oversight. Uh, the elected, uh, the other elected representatives in, in the country had no means of exercising any oversight or um, scrutiny on the activities of the military. I mean, it, it, a perilous situation that you could imagine, even even with the military whose whose history had until recently, if if a, if a military's history had been positive and you gave them that sort of free hand, uh, you'd be deeply concerned about what would immediately occur. This was a military that has a history of brutal repression of the people of Myanmar, and they're granted 25% of the seats in the parliament. They're granted uh, ministerial positions that are reserved for them in important roles, and they've got zero oversight and zero scrutiny from the elected civilian politicians. It, it was a it was a pretty concerning situation for the civilians in, in Myanmar, uh, and I thought, and I think most people thought, pretty good deal from the military's point of view. Uh, there was an election held last November, and again overwhelmingly rejected uh, the military's proxy candidates. I mean, they came home with with 8% uh, of the available seats. So of the remaining 75, a proxy party comes home with about 8% of the available seats. And that was less than they got at the 2015 election. So we're, we're seeing that at every opportunity, the people are rejecting uh, the, the military uh, as best they can. Um, that seems to have 
upset the military to a degree that I think has surprised a lot of us. It seemed to be uh, the point where they realised that uh, they were never going to have any more power within Myanmar than they had had in the past, and that the country was genuinely rejecting them as at, at every opportunity. Uh, they were upset at the conduct of the election, they said, and they followed a playbook that, that had been laid out, in fact, by Trump. Uh, they, they claimed that an election undertaken during COVID times was, was rife with electoral fraud. Uh, they, they claimed that um, it didn't reflect the will of the people. And they uh, blamed the elected with the, the representatives of the, the majority that were elected, and that, that's uh, Aung San Suu Kyi's uh, National League for Democracy, and we can talk a bit more about her later. I don't want you to think for a moment that I think she's a, a positive um, uh, uh, representative of the people. There's, there's, she, she, she's a racist, um, but she and her party did represent uh, the majority of those elected at the election in, tw in uh, November. Uh, the military blamed her. She, though, was not minded to negotiate with them in the lead-up to uh, the members of parliament taking up their seats in early February. So, so there's a difference between uh, Myanmar and Australia. Uh, they have elections in November, and... Uh, the, the, the system is, is very much that the parliamentarians aren't regarded as parliamentarians until they've officially taken up their seats. It, it would be, in, I mean, constitutionally probably a little bit similar to Australia. There's often a lag between uh, the election and when the parliament first sits. But in Myanmar, it's a, uh, it, it's a clearly determined lag. So the new government doesn't come in. Um, it wouldn't be expected to have come in till uh, the parliament had sat. Um, so, so, for instance, in, in 20, uh, 2015, there was an election in November, but the new the new government didn't take up its seats till I think end of end of the following March or the beginning of the the, the of April of 2016. Uh, during that period, there was a crisis. Uh, this time, so between November 20 and uh, February, Sichi uh, didn't negotiate. To, to, to the military satisfaction. Uh, there was some intervention, I understand, from, uh, from, from Chinese diplomats in the week leading up to the coup in an attempt to forestall any potential uh, coup. Uh, the military started to talk about a coup during that week. But the, but the overwhelming feeling of most observers uh, at the end of January was the military had a pretty good deal. They, they'd done as much sabre-rattling as they were likely to do, and ultimately... Uh, they would not want to uh, up upset the apple cart too much. Uh, we, we were wrong about that, and we were wrong for a number of reasons. The, the, the obvious one is that, that we, we just we became comfortable with the, the, the with where Myanmar was at, and we didn't realise that the military hadn't changed one iota uh, in terms of international observers. Uh, the military hasn't changed. This is the same military that genocidally attacked the Rohingya in 2017. This is the same military that's been in, in constant conflict with ethnic minorities in Myanmar since the 1950s. Um, they're, they're brutal. They're, they're, they're horrid. Uh, they're guilty of genocide, war crimes, crimes against humanity. Um, th these are not, not my assessment. This is UN investigators assessing this. Uh, and they wanted absolute power within Myanmar. They weren't going to get that 
with a an elected parliament that wasn't prepared to give in to them, which is what they realised they had uh, with the outcome of November's election. Uh, obviously, there's a lot of talk about the the potential for Minong Lang, the, uh, the, the the senior general who launched the coup, it was due to retire this year. I was at the mandatory age, and it was clear that the new parliament would not pass legislation to allow him to extend his stay. Uh, and, of course, uh, his, he and his family have extensive business interests within Myanmar. Uh, they would be at risk were he forced to retire. And, and that the perception was that that was another key motivator for, for him, in particular as the head of the military, uh, pushing for a coup and, and ultimately launching a coup. Uh, the The... I mean, what do the coup involve? Uh, arresting the elected, the elected politicians. They've been incommunicado. They've been charged. Uh, some have been charged with with COVID-related offences, going back to the election campaign uh, and other things. But the, the nature of the charges are irrelevant because it's a it's a military that will just. I mean, it uses the law arbitrarily. So. So, so we can sort of look beyond what someone might be charged with. Others will be charged with um, security offences and, 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 and various things like that. But they'll simply keep those politicians in jail. They're not going to let them out because they don't want to provide a, a rallying point for the community. But the community has rallied and the community's rallied in, in a couple of important ways. Obviously, there's the, the, those who support and, and are connected with the elected politicians. So the old, the old sort of uh, National League for Democracy uh, folk who want who want uh, a return to Aung San Suu Kyi to, in, in uh, of the, the, the civilian rule of Aung San Suu Kyi. Uh, but I think most importantly, there's a very strong civil disobedience movement in in Myanmar now. There's a general strike underway, and, and that has pushed the demands of the protest movement beyond simply a return to the pre-coup status quo. And I think that's, for me, one of the most important things that, that's come out of this. Myanmar's a really young country. 70% of the country weren't born in 1988. So that's when, that's when Aung San Suu Kyi first came to political prominence during an uprising then. 70% of the country weren't born when that occurred. And they've, they've, many of them have grown up with access to the outside world, they've grown up with um, me. They've grown up with access to the internet that their parents didn't have. They're, they're far more internationalist. They're far more globalist. They've linked with with um, with the Milk Tea Alliance, um, and, and they've they've got aspirations for themselves that are simply not a return to the status quo that the National League for Democracy and Aung San Suu Kyi's government. Uh, had had given them. Uh, they don't want to return. They don't simply want the, the the old 2008 constitution put back in place and the military to, to maintain their privileges. They want the military fully out of politics. And they've they've actively uh, pursued strategies of unity with other groups in a way that the majority, that activists from the majority group, the Bamar in Myanmar, it's a Buddhist group. Has in the past really not done to, the, to, to this extent. Um, pe- people have legitimately argued in the past that the dispute between the military and Aung San Suu Kyi was in fact a dispute between two, two elite groups within the majority ethnicity. Um, these protests are not that. These protests are uh, the people uh, showing remarkable unity 
nationally opposing a brutal military regime. Uh, important, and, and Habib will no doubt talk about this, but there has been a reaching out to uh, Rohingya uh, as, as part of that protest movement in a way that we wouldn't have expected uh, even one year ago or six months ago. There's, there's now an understanding from many among the, the majority of the country. Now, not, not everyone. I mean, you know, this is not a, this is far from, this is far from wholesale change, but there is an acknowledgement by, by many that many of the crimes that they, they heard had been undertaken against the Rohingya, but frankly didn't believe because they, they considered them too brutal, that they thought people were play acting. They're now realizing that those those things are happening on their street. They're, they're happening in Mandalay and, and Yangon and, and, and Bago. So, so there's a, there's, there's a reckoning going on for many in Myanmar with, with what has happened with the Rohingya and this silence on that, that there's an understanding that maybe the aspirations of the ethnic minority groups, basic things, they want, they want some local autonomy, uh, which is not unreasonable. They want, they want their culture and language to be valued, which is not unreasonable. But there's an understanding now that that those things are not markers of sedition, as they were prese- as they were often presented by the military in the past. But but they're just reasonable demands, and they've been seen as reasonable demands by many many people in Myanmar who a year ago would have ignored them or or or, or rejected them. So that's an important change that's that's underway. That unity, I think, is is incredibly important. Um, where are we now? I think is is important too. Uh, well, wh- where we are is 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 chaos. We've had uh, this, this is week uh, this is week eleven. Uh, the military launched the coup on the first of Feb. They would have expected using their usual tact. I mean, they, the military in Myanmar's usual tactics are shooting people or brutalizing people in other ways as a means of sending as a means of getting them to do what the military wants to do. Uh, that hasn't worked this time. Uh, and we're 11 weeks in, and, and what we've got is a general strike, a massive civil disobedience movement. Uh, the banks are barely functioning. When, when an ATM opens, there are mile-long queues to access cash, literally mile-long two queues. Ago, two minutes to go, Ronan. Yep, no worries, I'll, I'll finish with this. Uh, literally mile-long queues. So the banking system is, is, is tottering. It's about, it's about to collapse. The public service isn't working. Uh, the, the public uh, transport is is literally at a standstill. Uh, th- this is a this is a country that is simply not working. And the military are in a position now where the people have made clear that they simply won't work for them. So where that leaves the international community is that they've got the military who who the people won't won't work for. The country can't function if the military is in control. But the military believes that they need to convince the people, and the way they intend to do that is by shooting them. And we saw that in Bago on the weekend, uh, where they used um, rifle propelled grenades against peaceful protesters, um, you know, piling bodies up in pagodas, uh, burning people alive. There's instances of that as well. There are now 756 people dead, uh, 50 children. Children shot in their homes. This is a brutal military, and it's not, it's not going to stop its brutality until someone stops them. The people won't work for them, and that means that Myanmar is heading very quickly towards uh, either a situation where there is a, a widespread civil war, 
uh, or it becomes a failed state. And that's a problem for the region and the world. Uh, from the West's point of view, uh, Western rhetoric has been great. It's been much better than it's been under Trump when it comes to Myanmar. But that's all it's been. There's been there's been not much more. There's, we need a global arms embargo at a, at, a, at a minimum. There's no excuse for people been able to. There's no excuse for the military been able to buy more bullets because they're using them against children. Uh, so at, at, at a minimum, we need a global arms embargo. We probably need the international community. In fact, we do need the international community now to recognise the alternate government, which, which would which would likely have to be a represent, the the representatives of the elected politicians plus um, plus others. So it so, so the, the 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 CRPH, the representatives, the, the elected politicians, and I'd say CRPH plus. So. That those reps plus ethnic minorities and others need to be included in that in that process, and that needs to happen immediately. And we need we need to see UN investigators and and probably Guterres on the ground in Myanmar. They need to go there. I mean, enough of the enough of the excuses. We don't need another nice statement from Guterres. We don't need anything more from Biden. We need them to go there. And uh, yeah, I'll leave it there. All right. Um, you are just listening to a recording of a talk um, by Ronan Lee, um, speaking at a public forum um, titled Repression and Resistance in Myanmar slash Burma, which happened last week, um, which and it was organised by Green Left and Socialist Lights in Melbourne. And he's, um, the summary of, I guess the summary of his talk was sort of talking, setting the kind of context for the whole situation that's currently unfolding in Myanmar and Burma right now. So yeah, hope listeners enjoyed. Was the question of Burma slash Myanmar discussed, like the name? Cause my understanding was always that Burma was the, the kind of, the kind of like progressive or proper name and Myanmar was a name that, that the, Junta had given the country. Okay, so just to explain that, um, there's a bit, just a bit of an interesting context. So you know how um, Ronan Lee um, made a comment about how 80% of the country, well, what was the um, statistic again? Like how the majority of the country um, is very young. Yeah. Basically, it seems to be that amongst the sort of solidarity movement, um, which has been primarily led by young people um, mm-hmm. in Myanmar, is that they primarily identify Myanmar as Myanmar. Um, okay. So that, that's been the reason why I sort of refer, use both Burma and Myanmar. It's more that the, the, the current sort of generation of activists refer to Burma as Myanmar, whereas the older generation refer um, to Myanmar as Burma. So that's sort of the... The context, even though, yeah, me and, you're right, Myanmar is actually the more artificial name. Burma is probably the more authentic name, but okay. It's but just, that that sort of battle to reclaim the the, the real name, quote unquote, is kind of past. And, yeah, and look, and yeah, it's, we're, it's we're be, more focused on getting rid of the yeah the military to, junta. Than, be, yeah, yeah, basically, yeah. It appears to be that most of the young activists mm. refer to um, Burma as Myanmar. So, hence mm. why I sort of use both terms sort of interchangeably. There's sort of no there's a bit of sometimes there's a different context and you have to be sensitive around these sort of issues yeah, yeah. where there's um yeah often activists or the left wing movements will make a sort of a claim on a certain term being more authentic than others but it's yeah it seems to me that that doesn't appear to be contested other mm. than the fact that it seems to be most of the new generation of activists who are organizing on the ground refer to Burma as Myanmar yeah cool okay interesting 
Okay, um, so I might just go play a quick announcement and then we'll have a bit of a discussion drawing on some, some of the latest articles in Green Left. You are listening to Green Left Radio. Kafias are Palestinian scarves and they're a symbol of support for justice for the Palestinian people. Buying one will support the last remaining factory in Hebron that makes kafias, and all proceeds from the sales support projects in Palestine, especially Gaza, as well as local solidarity organisations. From the traditional black and white kafia to an array of modern designs, all scarves are just $30 each. Explore the range and order online or drop by 3CR during business hours. Wear your support for the rights of Palestinians. Go to kafias.org.au. That's K-U-F-I-Y-A-S.org.au. A 3CR supporter. All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio. And to start, um, it is 7.38 um, a.m. And we have myself, Jacob and Zane on the line. And basically the kind of discussion I want to kind of start, and just to give a bit of a, a content warning, um, we're going to be, dis- um, which um, basically mentions of, 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 of police violence and um, murder, um, and this is basically a bit of a discussion and update on quite a, a positive development that has happened in the part in the past week. Um, I think this happened on Wednesday, I think, or Thursday. I remember. I think Wednesday was when the verdict was said. So, essentially, in the United States, George Floyd's killer um, has been found guilty. Um, who was known as former police officer Derek Chauvin, was found guilty by a jury on all charges on April 21st. And to give a bit of a, I think this is a very kind of, start. I think this is a very positive kind of development. I think this really is the result of masses of people on the street protesting, especially in response to the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis. And I think this is, I think, but it all, but it also, I think, shows that I think we have a very long way to kind of go, um, because in fact, um, just while there is, while one police officer has been found guilty, um, of murder, there's plenty, there's many other police officers in the United States who have gotten away with, um, the murder of African Americans. And, yeah, maybe I'll pass on to Zane if you have any sort of comments, and I might draw on some of the comment, um, some of the points that in the Green Left article. Uh, well, I guess something that stood out for me in this trial is that there's a lot of racist killings uh, and, and deaths in custody. And this one really stood out because of the, the really disturbing and, and iconic uh, footage of, of Derek Chauvin kneeling on, uh, on George Floyd's neck for nine minutes and 29 seconds. Um, I guess something that stood out for me is that he was found guilty of murder in the context of that evidence being available. There's probably, you can almost guarantee, if if that footage had not been taken by the young woman who filmed it, uh, you can almost guarantee he wouldn't have been found guilty. And over the last week, I think there's been two or three 
police shootings of young people. Um, there's no footage of that, or if there is, there'll be no, you know, there'll be no justice for those people that have been killed. So it's it's almost like there's this kind of arbitrary thing where if if someone is killed with a gun, it's not murder. But if you kneel on their neck for 10 minutes and kill them that way, then eventually there's outcry and, and they are found guilty of murder. But in my mind, why are those other killings any less of a murder? Just because they're very, you know, they happen relatively more quickly and in a, you know, using a firearm. And, and I guess a similar situation here in Australia, there's a lot of deaths in custody still happening. Um, uh, and it just seems a bit arbitrary. So it's it's good that justice has been served, and it's good that there's been such a massive movement and such public pressure that in this instance the cops have not been able to do what they usually do and just shrug it off and give some bullshit excuse and get away with it. Uh, but I think a lot of activists over in Minneapolis and the US have been saying... This is a small step in the right direction, but we still have a long way to go because there's so many people still getting murdered by the cops and uh, there's no justice for those people as yet. Mm. Here, here, Zane. And I think just to draw on this article that has been written in Green Left by Malik Mia, who is an um, African-American socialist based in um, the United States in California... Um, he wrote it. He's written a number. He's written a bit of a kind of summary of the kind of different asp- aspects of the of the trial of um, of Derek Chauvin, and basically to talk to talk about a few, I guess, a few kind of aspects of it. Basically, the the prosecute um, the prosecution um, um, basically attempted to um, open the trial. Basically, the basis of the prosecution's case against um, um, George Floyd's killer Derek Chauvin was, as sort of Zane alluded to, this um, 9 minute and twenty nine second video, which essentially depicted the murder of George Floyd by this police officer, and um, the main the kind of evidence. Um, the evidence by by eyewitnesses and testimony by police officers, including um, including the chief of police, um, dec- argued that you know Chauvin was not um, following blue police procedure and should be convicted, which was sort of interesting to note. But I think really, as sort of Malik Mia kind of responds to that, you know, top um, police officials kind of argued that Chauvin was the exception to good policing. But really, for the experiences of many African-Americans and many others, they act, their experience is actually Chauvin is actually the norm of um, when it comes to modern policing in the United States, especially as it applies to black and brown people. Another sort of interesting thing about this case is that the Minneapolis City Council, and I think this really does reflect, I think, the amount of sort of pressure and the power of, I guess, the mass protests that have happened, um, that happened around George Floyd last year, is that they, um, is the Minneapolis City Council agreed to a historic civil settlement, paying the, the Floyd family over 27 million, um, 27 million, which is basically the largest pre-trial settlement pre-trial settlement ever. And 
the the kind of claims um, of the defence from um, of Derek Chauvin basically attempted to try and repeat this kind of false claim that Floyd died from a heart condition and drug use. A former medical examiner said um, from Maryland argued that it could have been carbon monoxide from the car fumes that killed Floyd, which is just completely ridiculous. And the overall the overall kind of outcome of the case was that Chauvin was um, charged with second-degree unintentional murder, third-degree murder, and second-degree manslaughter. Chauvin himself declined to testify, um, citing his Fifth Amendment right to avoid self-incrimination. Um, and to kind of note, the aim of the defence was really to get, in terms of this whole political context, was to get a single jury to believe Chauvin followed police procedures. It did not have to prove Chauvin's innocence. The defence sought a hung jury and no conviction. And the um, Minnesota Attorney General would then have to decide to drop the case or hold a retrial. But yeah, and I think one of the, the other sort of issues I think um, that I think this trial has kind of brought up, and this is something that Malik Mia brings up in the article, is one of the reasons why police officers in the United States are essentially able to get away with murder is there's this whole sort of legislation thing of um, qualified immunity for police. Um, the law is basically easy um, to basically... It makes it easy for, for cops to essentially get away with murder because essentially... Um, Essentially, the the um, cops are given immunity from mm. any kind of civil as suits. long as you are following police procedures, which contain broad sort of guidelines about what you're allowed to do if you feel threatened or if you think community safety is at risk, then you know you're able to kill someone. Mm. Basically, they can the police can sort of justify any action they yeah. can take. If it if it constitutes reasonable course of action, like for example, right to self defence, etc., that's generally the kind of argument. And of course, who actually sets the parameters of what is considered reasonable? The cops. It is the cops or the government. And of course, one of the other things, the other sort of contexts to this whole case is, um, is that in the United States, police budgets are continuing to grow. You know, there's more military armaments, tear gas and weapons of war are purchased. And, of course, then police then use that force um, to um, deploy it upon protesters. And I think one of the things um, that Malik Mia kind of argues is in this article is that the police system, as it must be, uh, must as it exists, must be abolished and replaced if they are if they're if there are if there is such a thing as good cops, they can be re-registered and rehired in a new police safety force. And I think you know the argument is um, one of the other things is that I think the trial um, that Malik argues is that the trial made clear that Chauvin and other the other cops involved are criminally liable for Floyd's murder. Yet the police's narrative, um, called cop anger, um, cop propaganda by some is that police make split-second decisions and so all their actions are justified. And essentially, but under this sort of system is basically black and brown people are seen as less than human and criminalised for existing. It's why Floyd, Wright and Tolundo um, were killed. Most men, white men confronted by police for crime, some with guns and some following mass murders, are arrested, not shot. Um, and, of course, um, one of the things is... 
one of the argue one of the sort of interesting sort of argues um there is um that the Chauvin's defense um lawyer tried to argue is that basically he tried to sort of cast aspersions on the whole jury by saying that oh well they're all going to be they're, they're going to be politically motivated um to convict um to convict Chauvin because basically you know they try to make this argument that you know the courtroom is kind of apolitical um so yeah that's i think and um, Malik, you can read sort of more detail about the article on greenleft.org.au. But basically, the uh, this kind of summarization that um, Malik sort of ends is that the whole world is watching until black lives matter, no lives matter. Yeah. And I think one of the sort of comments I sort of want to kind of note about this is, you know, while yeah, it is true that one cop, um, one cop, um, one cop killer has been found. One killer, um, well, I don't know. I'm trying to find the correct face of it. Was while one cop has been found guilty of murder for um of an African American, there's still many who are still not have not faced justice or any consequences for what they have done. And in fact, I think while while the case was happening, there was actually a, another reported shooting of a of a child, but at the hands of a police officer hmm. in one particular state. And um, I think also, there's also, I think, the other the other context to make the kind of links to Australia, you know, we're still in a context where all the kind of deaths, um, deaths in custody of, of Aboriginal people have not been um, met with any justice under the, under the court system. And I think ultimately the kind of lesson there is, while... It is clear that in um, in the United States context, while all the Democrat politicians and the Republicans are trying to use this case and this precedent that's being set here as an argument for why they should not do any reform of the police system, I think it really shows that we can't necessarily um, we can't actually necessarily it shows I think that we can't necessarily rely on the court system. And the, and the, and the political system as it exists to, um, to achieve true justice and it has to be fought for because really the reason why Derek Chauvin was found guilty was really the result of a mass movement and mass protests on the streets. For real. Hmm. Anyway, um, yeah, is there any other comments you'd like to make about this? Oh, well, just that it's sort of, as we saw last year, in between the two big lockdowns here in Melbourne, that the, that struggle, the Black Lives Matter struggle in the US, is really tied up with the struggle here to stop deaths of Aboriginal people in custody and to, uh, uh, on top of that, stop the obscene rate at which Aboriginal people are you know, hyper-policed and uh, locked up in in a great many cases, just for, for minor indiscrepancies. Okay, well, I'll just play a quick announcement and we'll move on to another news story. You're listening to Green Left Radio. Yeah, I spent three and a half years living on the street and... I know what it's like to have no hope and not to feel part of the society, and I think that's where a lot of these people are. But I think we need to help people who are traumatised and help people get back on their feet and give them hope and help them um, feel like they're a part of the society again instead of just moving them on like they're an inconvenience. 
if it were not for ruminations, how would the views of those of us who have been homeless or are homeless, how would these views ever be aired? How would they ever be expressed? Subscribe to the station that gives airtime to people with a lived experience of homelessness. Support 3CR. Okay, you're listening to Green Left um, Radio, and we were just having a bit of a discussion on the trial of um, Derek Chauvin, um, who is the police officer who was um, who murdered um, George Floyd in Minneapolis last year, and how he has been found guilty, and a sort of bit of political analysis of that. Now, the next kind of story I kind of want to go into, and this is drawing on an article that has just been printed in Green Left um, by Alex um, Bainbridge on Afghanistan. And the article is titled, Afghanistan Shows We Need to Continue Campaigning Against the Warmongers. And this article is responding to a number of, I guess, political developments that have kind of been happening in the past week. And that is that the Morrison government um, did announce, made an announcement that they'll be withdrawing um, there'll be a withdrawal of combat troops from Afghanistan. And Alex argues that this is a welcome development, but it doesn't mean that the warmongers have in Canberra and Washington have been defeated. And he draws on the fact that the United States has been spending tens of billions of years, um, tens of billions of dollars each year on the war in Afghanistan with the US $45 billion with over $45 billion in, in, in US dollars in 2018, according to a senior Pentagon official, and over $1 trillion over the past 20 years. And there is some claim, there are claims from um, US President Joe Biden um, that he's claiming um, that he is going to be ending the war, but he's also calling for massive increase in military spending, and of course even more than his predecessor Donald Trump. And I think what Alex kind of argues in this, in this, in this Green Left article is that this shows that the US Empire's war plans have not diminished. And of course, Biden said as much in his um, speech announcing the troops would be withdrawn. And he, uh, and he said, he stated here, we'll not take our eyes off the terrorist threat, he said. We'll reorganize our counterterrorism capacities and the substantial um, assets in the region to prevent re-emergence of terrorists. And then he kind of refers to sort of the classic sort of rhetoric of national strategy to monitor and disrupt significant terrorist threats, not only in Afghanistan, but anywhere they may be arise, uh, be it Africa, Europe, the Middle East and elsewhere. And the New York Times spelled out what this would kind of mean. It would mean uh, it argued that military bases in nearby countries, bombers flown from aircraft carriers and ongoing drone attacks. And one of the things as well is that Biden's sort of um, order to withdraw does not necessarily apply to the 1,000 extra troops that the US has not officially acknowledged are in Afghanistan. These include special forces and CIA operators, operatives, and so there's a strong likelihood that the, at least some of these off-the-book forces will remain. And, of course... Um, what this what this kind of means politically is that it kind of mean it it, uh, it leads into the fact that the U.S. empire will be seeking to impose its will by means of what the New York Times described as a less viable but still potent force in the region, and of course 
Um, one of the things, it is clear that the US is planning to cut its losses in Afghanistan, and there should not be mistake, no mistake in the fact the US did not win the war. Significantly, the Council on Foreign Relations reported that today the Taliban is stronger than at any point since 2001, and it is widely expected that Taliban will quickly regain more power once US forces leave. And really... One of the reasons that Alex kind of argues the reasons why there's this sort of shift towards um, retreating from Afghanistan is that the warmongers are positioning themselves for aggression against China. As Biden hinted, we will have to, we have to shore up American competitiveness to meet the stiff competition we're facing from an increasingly increasingly assertive China. And um, and Biden again will be much more formidable to our adversaries and competitors over the long term if we fight the battles for the next 20 years, not the last. And one of the things that Alex also kind of points out in this article is that in the context of this whole discussion around the whole war in Afghanistan, is that the government and, um, the government and its corporate media Mouthpieces like to present Australia's military operations as humanitarian gestures carried out with a spirit of mateship. The truth is that the war crimes committed by Australian soldiers in Afghanistan better represent its imperialist role. The government's hawkishness towards China is another reflection like this. And... Alex also kind of points out that Australia, like the US, is increasing offensive military expenditure. And... He and Alex then responds by arguing that military funding should be dramatically reduced and redirected towards addressing the biggest actual threat to our security, climate change. Military activities themselves are major emitters of greenhouse gases, reducing military expenditure as client action. And Australia must break its alliance with the US, whether led by unhinged um, Republicans or supposedly moderate Democrats, the US is a failed state for its own people and a dangerous rogue state for the rest of, uh, rest of the um, for the rest of the world. We didn't manage to stop the imperialist warmongers in Canberra and Washington from invading and occupying Afghanistan, but as as freedom fighter um, Mala Joa has repeatedly said. Um, the war has prevented ordinary Afghans from being able to defeat the reactionary and brutal Taliban and warlords politically. And then Alex um, kind of argues that, you know, we need to continue uh, to stand against militarism and human rights abuses that go along with it. And, of course, one opportunity he kind of points out is that there is going to be a protest against the Land Forces military exhibition in Brisbane from June the 1st to the 3rd, which I think we'll go, we'll do a bit of promotion of and do a bit of interview with the organisers of that protest in the future. Hmm. Yeah, and I think that's spot on that quote from Merlo Joya. The, we, we've heard uh, earlier this morning from Rowan Lee about Burma, Myanmar. That is the fight of the Burmese people, of the Myanmar people. That is not going to be solved by some imperialist country like Australia or the USA sending in troops to wage war on the junta and, by the way, killing a whole huge number of civilians along the way. It's got to be an organic process. It's got to be those people who build up their own kind of grassroots forces and build up their own strengths to get rid of repressive and reactionary regimes. And that doesn't matter if it's in 
Egypt, in Sri Lanka, in Myanmar, in, in China, in any other part of the world. You can't just invade countries that have got dictators or people that you don't like in charge. It's not a solution. Those people have to form their own people power to get rid of those repressive regimes. And by invading the country, you just defer that fight. You disempower those people who are trying to build up their own forces to fight against it. You're just imposing something from outside that does nothing to build up those organic kind of homegrown alternative power structures to bring down a dictatorship. And the idea that ScoMo gets there and put, puts his crocodile tears on and pretends that we're there to defend freedom or something, what, what utter crap. This was a war of conquest, a war of aggression, and it was to kind of... It just blows my mind that the US gave something like $6 billion in weapons and funding and training in urban terrorism to the Mujahideen, predecessor of the Taliban, throughout the 1980s to to attack the kind of Soviet-aligned People's Democratic Party of Afghanistan government. It just blows my mind that having created the Taliban themselves and then experienced blowback in the form of the September 11 attacks, their answer is to invade this country that they have already massively distorted the internal politics of it's just so repulsive and disgusting so if it's going to turn around and pretend like this is about defending freedom what absolute garbage this is about projecting white supremacist imperial domination into an oil rich sort of strategic part of the world yeah here here and i think yeah very i think I definitely agree with, I guess, all your comments um, that you just made, Zane. Anyway, um, we got to quickly um, just play a quick announcement, um, but you can read the article um, that I just sort of summarised on greenleft.org.au, and yeah, have a bit um, and gives a bit of a kind of a bit of a political argument on on this whole kind of context for um, the withdrawal of troops from Afghanistan and what the kind of actual agenda of these capitalist governments really is. All right, so I'll just go play a quick announcement. Um, you are listening to Green Left Radio. 3CR programs provide information and analysis you won't hear in the mainstream. Today we'll be looking at the legacy of the US war on Vietnam on Laos. And as far as corporate capitalism is concerned, it is the worst political and economic system that you can have. Our laws about jailing refugees and asylum seekers are so well crafted. Sex is not irrelevant and we like who we are, but we don't have to be imprisoned by our gender. Become a subscriber today. Call us on 9419 8377 or visit 3cr.org.au. 3CR, the voice of dissent. All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio and um, it is now um, and this is getting, um, before the genocide, a celebration of West Papuan cultural history and struggle. And that's going to be happening from Friday, April the 23rd to Saturday, April the 24th. And it's going to be happening at the Collingwood Yards at 35 Johnston Street, 
um, um, in Collingwood. Although, yeah, Collingwood Yards at 35 Johnson Street in Collingwood. And then on, um, on f- tonight at 5pm, there's going to be an 8th anniversary of the Rana Plaza murders in Bangladesh. And that is going to be happening at 5pm at the 8 Hour Monument, corner of Russell and Victoria Streets in the city. On Saturday, um, April the 24th, there's going to be um, an event organised by a protest organised by Extinction Rebellion titled Pedal Rebels Monthly Bike Ride for Climate, and that's going to be happening at 10:30 a.m. 60 Leicester Street in Carlton. On Sunday, the 20 April the 25th, um, celebrate the 19th birthday of George Douglas and his lifelong contribution to the labour movement, migrant workers and ethnic minorities. And that's going to be happening at 2.30pm at the Alfreton Grabbers um, Centre, 80 Old Heidelberg Road in Alfreton. And then on Wednesday, April the 28th, um, there's going to be the International Workers Memorial Day at 10.30am at the Shreds Hall, 54 Victoria Street in Carlton. Um, from April, um, from Thursday, April the 29th, um, there's going to be a film screen, the United States versus Billy Holiday, and that's going to be happening at the Sun Theatre 8 Ballarat Street in Yarraville. On April the 29th, Thursday, the April 29th, there's going to be a May Day International Solidarity Event, and that's going to be happening at 6pm at the Shreds Hall, 54 Victoria Street, Carlton. And then on Friday, April the 30th, um, there's going to be an event, um, Unions Welcome Refugees Freedom Celebration Barbecue, and that's going to be happening at 6.30pm at the Shreds Hall, 54 Victoria Street, Carlton. And then on Saturday, May the 1st, um, I don't have the exact details with me right now, but there is going to be a protest organised by the Burmese community in solidarity with, um, the, pro- uh, with, um, the protesters resisting um, the military coup. And that's going to be happening, yeah, I think it should be happening on May, I know it's happening on the May the 1st, but I don't have the exact details. It's probably likely if it's there's any sort of precedent. Most of the rallies have been organised at Federation Square, so it will likely be sometime during the day on Sunday, May the 1st. Um, on Sunday, May the 1st, there is also going to be um, the May, um, the Geelong May Day Dinner, Capitalism and Crisis, and that's going to be happening at 6.30pm at the Shreds Hall in Geelong, 127 Myer Street. And um, you'll have to book tickets for that. But if you go on to the Green Left Facebook page or the Green Left website, you should be able to find details on how to book. And then um, the next kind of event to note is there is going to be a May Day march on Saturday, May the 1st, um, organised by Workers Solidarity. As far as I know, that's going to be at 12pm outside the Shreds Hall. But there's also going to be more, the more, the other May Day march. There's another May Day rally in March on Sunday, May the 2nd, which is going to be, which is organised by the May Day Committee. And that's happening at 1.30pm at the Shreds Hall corner of Ligon and Victoria Street, Carlton. On Wednesday, May the 5th, there's going to be a student walkout to end refugee detention at 1pm at the State Library. On Friday, May the 7th, um, there's going to be a Painters and Dockers Solidarity Concert for Timor Leste Day, and that's going to be happening at the MUA 46-54 Island Street in West Melbourne. 
And then there's going to be on Saturday, May the 8th, there's going to be a rally. Keep fighting for refugees and mandatory detention now, um, organised by Campaign Against Racism and Fascism at 2pm at the State Library. Um, there's going to be an online forum happening at the same time um, by Alan Pup, um, the role of the JNF. Wait a minute, no, it's not actually at the same time. It's actually it's actually an online forum that's actually at 2am in... If, so if you want to... What if you want to view something? Um, uh, if you want to view something at two a.m., you have to be up. Yeah, there's going to be an online forum on Palestine by quite a prominent um, Palestinian activist and scholar, um, Alan Pup. And then um, on Wednesday, the twelfth of May, there's actually going to be a film screen. Actually, I'm now excited about this because I've been wanting to do this film. I haven't actually seen it yet. Um, it's a classic Spike Lee film, "Do the Right Thing." It, 6.45pm at the Nova at May 12th. And then on May the 15th, there's going to be the Green Left 30th Anniversary Trivia Night, and that's going to be happening with doors opening from 6pm, and that's going to be happening at the MUA Hall um, from... Let's quickly get the date. Um, from um, at 46 to 54 Island Street in West Melbourne. And I might... And oh, the last event I'll just note is there's going to be a rally, Nakbar, 73 years of Israeli colonisation must end. And so that's happening next month on Sunday, May the 22nd at 2pm at the State Library. Is there any other events that we haven't mentioned yet? Yes, there is. Um, there is the uh, climate strike happening on the Friday the 21st of May. And... Um, Green Left Radio listeners may or may not be aware, I'm in a political rock band and we are playing Cafe Gummo on Thursday night, the 20th of May. So it's Climate Strike Eve and because it's Climate Strike on the Friday, don't be a scab, don't go to work on the Friday, have a long weekend, take the day off, call in sick and come along to our gig the night before and get G'd up about the climate strike that's going to be happening the next day. So that's at Cafe Gummo, 7-Eleven High Street, Thornbury. And we've got a... Uh, we're in the process of booking a support act, but uh, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. I reckon there's going to be another political, another well-known grassroots political activist musician from Melbourne that'll be supporting us. So yeah, Cafe Gummo, Thursday night the 20th, and then the climate strike the next day, Friday the 21st of May. Okay, well, thanks for that, Zane. Um, I'm just going to go play a quick announcement, and I'm just going to go quickly get um, our guest um, for the program, um, who we're going to be interviewing Poro Bibi, um, who is a West Papuan based in Melbourne. And, uh, and who is a human rights activist and a campaigner for Make West Papua Safe Again. And we're going to be having a bit of a discussion with him about the current updates on what's happening for the fight for West Papuan self-determination. You're listening to Green Left um, Radio. Fitzroy Legal Service has launched a free information and advice phone service for people who have been stopped, questioned fined or charged for breaching COVID-19 restrictions. Have you been fined or charged under the new laws or stopped and questioned by police for being outside? Call 0434 136 501. 
weekdays between 9am and 5pm. That's 0434 136 501. Or head to fitzroy-legal.org.au for more information. You can also report incidents at covidpolicing.org.au. Fitzroy Legal Service is a 3CR supporter. Solidarity Breakfast, your Saturday morning serving of union and working news, current events, opinion and talkback. Every Saturday, 7.30 till 9am, here on 3CR, 855 on your AM dial. All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio on Free CR, 855 AM. It is 8.30, um, 8.13 AM. And on the line, we have, um, Porobibi, um, who is a West, um, Papuan who is based in Nam, Melbourne. And he is, a long-standing human rights activist and campaigner for Make West Papua Safe Again. Um, and so we're having, we have him on our show today to have, to give a bit of an update on What's currently happening in West Papua and the, ho- the whole ongoing fight for self-determination? So, good morning, um, Paul Bibi. Hey, good morning. Good morning. Um, thanks for having me. Yeah. Well, maybe to start off, can you give, I guess, a bit of background and a bit of an overview on, I guess, what is, I guess, the current kind of situation and the prospects around, um, around freeing West Papua right now? Um, yeah, so... The current situation at the moment is really, uh, I would say, um, one of the most uh, dangerous uh, uh, situations in, in in West Papua because of the presence of the um, Indonesian military everywhere in West Papua. And one of the reasons is uh, the the end of um, special autonomy that. Um, has been started since um, 90, uh, 1998 and 1999. And so um, there are a lot of um, uh, mass demonstrations um, all over West Papua and to, to end the special autonomy. And we don't want the continuations of the second um, special autonomy in um, West Papua by Jakarta, Indonesia, and the the capital city Jakarta is always used uh, military brutality and and more um, TNI presence everywhere since since the first of act, act of free choice and then until now. So uh, by now, Paham um, um, West Papua lawyer associations already report that. There are already 50,000 uh, military base, um, as small as to uh, district regions and the village, and yeah, with the with the movement, we are trying to we're trying to get more reports on um, military brutality and also um, 
in here in Australia, especially with Microsoft Day, we have a, a firearms um, campaign with the land forces that uh, will be happening in Brisbane in June. We know that some Australia um, company will have been have been investing in in this in this uh, genocide as the firearms manufacturer come from here, and also. At the moment, we have um, what do you call it uh, in West Papua. There is um, Pon, the Grand Oragon National. So we, in in English, it's like uh, Commonwealth Games. Uh, so it's a sport competition happening in West Papua, but um, they use it as a reason to send more um, troops and military, um, which is. Uh, five thousand of them, not not long ago, about two weeks. And also, there is another evil agenda from Jakarta, which allowing uh, more uh, foreign investment to build the uh, mining industries or any any other extractivism industry. Because at the moment, uh, the danger zone up in the Highlands area, which is um, uh, area called Nduga and Punchak Jaya, where the last two years it's been reported by um, Amnesty, Amnesty International there are more than 230 casualties of villages, including mothers and children, because um, in these two areas it's a, they call it a wobble block, mm. which is rich of uh, gold and mineral and uh, Freeport McMoran American gold copper company is trying to extend their project their contract to Indonesia and also they, they, they're closing the open open pit mining and then start the underground mining to go from Puncak Jaya area to uh, um, Timika area to this Puncak Jaya uh, and Duga area so um, the extension of the contract including um the contract with the people like uh, Luhut Panjaitan, you know, high high rank Indonesian soldier who have big ties with the um, um, the current uh, Minister of Defense, which is uh, Prabhu Subianto, the masterminds behind the genocide in Istimo, and also Wiranto, the previous uh, Minister of Defense, and the the Home Affairs Minister, which is Tito Karnafi and the High Chief, the former High Chief of Police in Indonesia, that used to work in Papua. So it is such a scary, um, scary plan that they're building up towards West Papua, because I don't think they care about uh, the people itself, but they only care about the land and resources. So. Um, yeah, at the moment it's really it's really um scary place to live in the world, I think in West Papua. And every day, every week you can hear any uh, a lot of news. Actually now the military Indonesian military in West Papua targeting um uh religious leader, our religious leader. The latest um info is um uh a reference in Panyai has been 
has been arrested because of they they accused him of um handling the the firearms are supplied to the Liberation Army. And another one is from Duga uh, about two months ago where a pastor named Jeremiah Sanambani has been murdered by the TNI um, because they know that all of these um, uh, religious leaders uh, start mobilizing to support uh, proper motions of self-determination. So, yeah. That's just the, the ladies from West Papua. Yep, same. Um, hey, Prabibi, how's it going? Um, there's an article that we've got in Green Left that mentions the Trans-Papua Highway and the Indonesian military using helicopters to uh, attack uh, people including using white phosphorus grenades and uh, bomblets. I'm just wondering if you're able to comment on that uh, aspect of, of of what's happening. Yeah. Um, regarding to that, uh, the, lo- the location is in Duga, yeah? So that, that location of the using of uh, white phosphorus and the helicopter and then at the same time, during that time, there are two, no, two, uh, three uh, churches stuff um, that has been murdered by the military with the helicopter too. At the same time, so uh, uh, not long, 2000, uh, January 2019, because of the murder of the church stuff, um, the World Churches Council um, has a visit, a pilgrim visit. And then they know that um, the the people in West Papua are still living in the same conditions. It's still poor living conditions and um, not much facilities, especially in the Highlands area. And uh, why why are they targeting this area? And um, it's because of um, they have they have that. Uh, 2011 to 2025 um, um, economic development and expansion uh, project, which is they want to connect um, Eastern Indonesia, like Maluku and West Papua, and connect to to the to the seaway maritime for maritime trade and also to the to the road, to the land. So at the moment, they're planning to build um, a road. That's why they call it the Transpapon Project. So it will connect um, from down south, Merauke, West Papua, which is close to Dao, and, and then go up north to um, to Sorong. And we know down south, we have uh, Merauke, we have... Um, Mife, Mife, which is another evil um, a plan by Indonesia to build more than um, 100,000 hectares of uh, uh, indigenous Mahusas land to build um, uh, oil palm plantations, oil palm industries there. And then, so they want to connect the road from there, and then you go up to Freeport Mining in central uh, West Papua, Timika, Golden Copa, company and then you connect up 
to the north in uh, Sorong, uh, no, West Papua, which is rich of um, uh, gas and oil and gas, and they have uh, uh, BP, one of uh, Asia Pacific. Uh, British Petroleum Company established in Bintuni, near Sorong, West Papua. So um, the transport point project is is not has not, has has no consent whatsoever to any um, indigenous organization in West Papua, and there's no such a, uh, communications happening. So it's just um, it's just. Uh, they they force the plan on us, and in that transport project, they're gonna build a road across the border to Papua New Guinea, which they will establish um, more than 80 uh, military bases. They call it a TNI AD Angkatandarat, which is like um, Australian Army, and that means West Papua couldn't flee. So what that means West Papua cannot seek for asylum to Papua New Guinea, and also. Um, West Papua will turn into such a little cage for for West Papuan people, and with the presence of military, that um, the ratio it could be fifteen over a thousand West Papuan populations. That means um, this is a slow motion genocide. I would say this is a slow motion motion genocide, and they're slowly erasing erasing us by populations of military by the the killings of uh, indigenous people, and we cannot go asking, uh, uh, seeking asylum to Papua New Guinea, and the silence of um, international community to you know, cannot send any emergency relief or yeah, there's nothing, nothing coming from to West Papua. Even the international journalists, it's very hard to get access to West Papua, so it's a hard time for us. Mm. All right. Well, we're getting, we're running a bit um, out of time now. But can you give us? Can you? Um, end, I want to sort of end by how can are there any about any sort of upcoming kind of solidarity events for West Papua and how people can kind of get involved in supporting the ongoing struggle for self determination. Yep. Yep. Um, okay. Uh, for Melbourne based uh, on first uh, and second May, there there will be uh, exhibition. So we're working together with the Green family that has been donating the um, the, the the Dutch American expeditions uh, ethnographic uh, paintings and photos. So we call it um, before the genocide exhibition. So if you're in Melbourne, come down to uh, Collingwood Art Pressings on first and second May. Uh, you can see this. Even me, I don't know the, the, this Papua. Life actually exists 100 years ago, and I can see it through pictures uh, uh, right now. So if you're curious about it, you can come. And in terms of mobilizations, if you want to join us, Disrupt Land Forces, there will be um, a huge uh, firearms industry expo in um, in Brisbane on 1st to 3rd June. And we're going to disrupt it, we're going to do a blockade because we know this is the core of the problem. we now having a peace coalition from different countries, Palestine, East Timor, um, West 
Saharan because we know we we are we are dying. We, we there are a lot of war and we had a lot of casualties because of these firearms companies, and uh, we want to fight for it. And yeah, thank you so much. Hey, well, yeah, thank you very much, um, Popo. She's pro BB. Okay. Wicked. Um, yeah, get along to that exhibition and, uh, yeah, show your support for West Papua and Independence. Um, yeah, it's a pretty, it's a damn tough wicket up there and the, the Indonesian military are just brutal. So it's, that's a really grinding struggle there. Mm. And it was good to kind of get a bit of an update on what's kind of happening there because we haven't had an update, um, in a while on Green Left Radio. So yeah, I'll, just to end the program, I would like to, um, thank all our listeners for tuning in this week and, um, that you can stay tuned, um, tune in next Friday and afterwards, um, after this program, you, um, stay tuned for, well, actually, I don't think there's going to be Beyond Zero Emissions. We're just going to be having a re, um, replay of, um, an Earth Matters, um, episode as far as I know, just looking at the thing here. But yeah. All, our, all the presenters would like to thank our listeners again and stay tuned for Green Left Radio next, next Friday. This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio, brought to you by Green Left Weekly Newspaper, which brings an alternative source of information that puts people and planet before profit. If you like our work, become a supporter from $5 per month at greenleft.org.au slash support or free call 1-800-634-206. Arise, you workers from the slumbers. Arise, you prisoners of want. For reason in revolt now thunders and at last since the age of Kant. Away with all your superstitions. Serve all masses. Arise. We'll change henceforth the old tradition and spurn the dust to win the prize. That's right, the commies are back. Reds underneath your beds and that crap.